Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 72, Clouds on the Horizon. This week, we will watch Henry VI's attempts to make the papacy comfortable with the fact that their neighbor to the south is not the same as their neighbor to the north. Pope Celestine may see it as encirclement by a family whose track record as sons of the Mother Church has been, to say it politely, a bit patchy. But Henry VI thinks that there is a way to making this work. Now let's see. Before we start, just a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Francisco, Peter and Pear who've already signed up. Now last time we left Emperor Henry VI enjoying the string of successes that made the year 1194 by far his best. Not only did he take possession of the Kingdom of Sicily, his by right of inheritance through his wife, but what put the icing on the cake in 1194 was the birth of his son and heir in the city of Jesi on Christmas Day. He was only 32 but his wife had just turned 40 and hope of continuing his line must have been thin on the ground. Henry VI had probably resigned himself to the idea of not having a legitimate heir. For him to die without a direct heir was not particularly worrisome for the dynasty, though, since Henry's father, Barbarossa, had eight sons, of which four, including Henry, were still alive by 1194. But now, even that possible wrinkle in his imperial career was resolved. Henry VI was at the top of the world. But the wheel of fortune that had catapulted him up keeps turning. Barely a month after his solemn coronation in Palermo, a monk appears in the imperial chamber and tells of a conspiracy. The Sicilian nobles were planning to murder their new ruler. Behind it, he says, is Tancred's widow, who's just recently had been so magnanimously allowed to retain the ancestral lands of her former husband. Other key conspirators were the Bishop of Salerno, who had so vehemently insisted on putting Constance in chains, and the admirals Margarito and Eugenius, who had frustrated Henry's siege of Naples in 1192. Initially, Henry VI did not believe the story, but when he was shown documents that implicated the main conspirators, he decided to strike. He invited them to court, confronted them with the proof he had gathered, and had them all arrested. Within days, the whole conspiracy collapsed, and its leaders were in jail. Their crime was high treason, and the sanction for that was death. Again, still magnanimous, Henry VI did not have them killed or blinded. They were exiled and kept under guard in Germany. The ex-queen Sibyl and her daughters were confined to the monastery of Saint-Odile in Alsace, where they were held until Pope Innocent III effected their release in 1198. The former boy king William III was brought to Hohenems, one of the largest Hohenstaufen castles near Lake Constance. He would never see daylight again. The admirals and the bishop ended up on the treefelds, in the suite of rooms so recently vacated by Richard the Lionheart. For many of his contemporaries, this felt a little bit too convenient, though. The conspiracy had allowed Henry to remove all potential leaders of opposition to his rule, just when he was planning to go home. There's also the question why the conspiracy happened so soon after Henry had taken power. 
A few months earlier, the conspirators were in charge of the kingdom, and they did surrender it without much resistance. If they had thought that imperial rule had to be opposed at all cost, they could have struck after Henry had released his army in October, after just taking Messina. Some questions are hanging in the air, and remember, this is a man some accused of having killed the elected bishop of Liège, and who had a returning crusader apprehended and only released after a huge ransom was paid. The conspiracy, disconcerting as it was, was also the background of one of the great love stories of the age. Amongst those taken prisoner was Irene, the daughter of the Byzantine emperor Isaac Angelos. She had been sent to Palermo to marry the son of Tancred as part of an alliance to keep Henry VI out of the Mediterranean. But this son, a man called Roger, had died before the marriage could actually take place. Irene nevertheless stayed in Palermo after Roger's death, probably because the political situation in Constantinople was too fragile. Her father would be deposed and blinded by his brother in 1195. Now, as a member of the family of Tancred, she was implicated in the conspiracy, and her fate was to be buried alive in some monastery in Germany. But that is not what happened. Henry VI's youngest brother, Philip, had fallen deeply in love with the Greek beauty. The 18-year-old prince had gone head over heels for the beautiful and ill-fated princess from the East. Young Philip was begging, beseeching, entreating and imploring his brother to release this wonderful creature, the love of his life. Henry VI, still magnanimous, let her go. She travelled back to Germany with the imperial party, not as a prisoner, but as the bride of Philip, the emperor's brother. Philip had initially been designated for the church and had been elected as Bishop of Würzburg, but in 1193 he took a U-turn. He left the church and became a layman again. That was probably in the wake of the death of his older brother Frederick, the Duke of Swabia, who had died in the Holy Land, and the realization that his other brothers were falling short of their great father. Otto, the second youngest, had inherited his mother's county of Burgundy. There he managed to create absolute chaos. He feuded with most of his neighbors. One he killed with his own bare hand, another was assassinated under implicating circumstances. He had the brother of the Bishop of Strasbourg executed and basically fought all the time with everybody until he was mercifully himself murdered in 1200. The next oldest surviving brother, Conrad, had been made Duke of Swabia upon his older brother's death in 1191. Conrad was also fond of the occasional quarrel with his neighbours, but his true passion was sex, both with willing and with unwilling participants. His end came about thanks to such a case of rape. One theory is that he was killed by an enraged husband, but my preferred version is that the victim bit off his right nipple. That wound became infected and this awful Duke of Swabia succumbed in 1196. At that point, Philip will become his brother's successor as Duke of Swabia and the de facto number two in the House of Hohenstaufen, after his brother, the Emperor Henry VI. Okay, so much for family history, but trust me, that will become relevant pretty soon. But before we get there, let's go back to Henry VI and the fundamental problem he needs to address. He might have found some compliant bishop who was prepared to crown him King of Sicily, but that is not the same as having the papal blessing for his ascension. Thing is that by 1194 the Kingdom of Sicily had become a fief of the papacy, 
and only of the papacy. Yes, they used to be imperial overlordship over southern Italy, and you may remember that the Emperor Lothar and Pope Innocent II had a bit of a ding-dong about who was to take the oath of vassalage of Apulian nobles. But 50 years later, this imperial right had gone from theoretical to non-existent. The kings of Sicily, beginning with Roger II, had signed multiple agreements with the papacy that confirmed the pope's feudal superiority. Usually, these agreements came about when the pope had, again, lost a battle against the Normans and was put in a cell. From there, he was made to graciously accept the Norman upstarts as his vassals, while signing an agreement that limited his effective control of the kingdom to close to zero. The last such agreement dated from 1156 and restricted papal rights to mere formalities. The Pope did not even have any influence on the selection of bishops in the Kingdom of Sicily. And Henry VI had to accept this, because he had taken Sicily not on the back of some long-forgotten imperial right, but as the inheritance of his wife, whose rights have come from the same source as that of her ancestors, the investiture of the kingdom by the papacy. Hence, in order to be fully established as King of Sicily, Henry VI needed the Pope to formally invest him as King. Without that, the Pope could at any point invest another third cousin twice removed of King Roger II as King of Sicily, and Henry VI would have another war to deal with. But it is more than just this formality that hinders things. The Pope is now sandwiched between two territories the Emperor controls. In the south, the Kingdom of Sicily and in the north, the Kingdom of the Lombards, including the lands of Matilda, that at this point are under imperial administration. This, Henry realizes, is an uncomfortable position for his holiness. It's important both for his reign, but also for his dynasty, that a sustainable settlement is found. Negotiations did not start slow. They did not start full stop. Henry VI and Pope Celestine III had not communicated at all, for three years. Relations had been strained ever since the freshly crowned emperor rode out of Rome in 1192, telling the Holy Father that he did not care one bit about his opposition to him becoming king of Sicily. To mend the fences, Henry thought he could give the Pope the one thing he should cherish more than him not being king of Sicily, and that would be the return of Jerusalem into Christian hands. So, Henry sends a letter to Celestine offering to take the cross. He asks to be sent a papal legate to discuss the details and formulate a plan. At the end of March, the papal response arrives at the imperial court in Bari. It is delivered by a simple bishop who says nothing. Celestine does not see why the promise of a crusade would be any reason to speak to this emperor again. Henry now changes the angle of attack. He sends a formal offer to the cardinals of the Curia, promising to leave with 1,500 well-equipped and well-funded knights and the same number of infantry for the Holy Land. And he simultaneously calls all his vassals to join him on crusade. Now the Pope cannot ignore Henry any longer. He may have his differences with the Emperor, but at this point the Church is not yet prepared to outright dismiss a sincere offer of crusade for purely political reasons. That that will do later. Celestine III has to and does send some cardinals to help plan the upcoming crusade. The two high-ranking cardinals, who've got a good reputation at the imperial court, duly arrive and the crusade is underway. 
They even bring a letter from Pope Celestine where he addresses Henry as Emperor of the Romans and says nice things about working together and the like. But when Henry probes the cardinals to find out about Celestine's willingness to accept them as King of Sicily, he gets a response he should have expected. What do these two things have to do with each other? We love the crusade idea, but that will not make you the legitimate king of Sicily. And with that, communication between the Pope and the Emperor goes silent again. The failure to strengthen the legitimacy of his reign in Sicily forced Henry to go all in on the crusade plan. If he were to return to Europe as the prince who had returned Jerusalem to Christendom, logic goes, there won't be anything the Pope could refuse him anymore. And equally, if he fails, the game is up. Papal allies will revolt in Sicily, and even the civil war in Germany may resume. So, failure is not an option, and therefore he needed massively increase the military commitment. When the crusade finally leaves in 1197, the knights and foot soldiers count up to 18,000, six times what he had promised the cardinals in 1195, and significantly more than his father Frederick Barbarossa had set out with in 1190. And he needs to go it alone. No other monarch should be allowed to share in the glory if he wants to return as the saviour of Outremer. And that is where the recent vow of allegiance of Richard the Lionheart comes in handy. Richard might have been interested in going back to the Middle East and to relive his glory days. He went even so far as to negotiate a peace with his foe, King Philip Auguste, just in order to be able to join the crusade. But Henry, as his new overlord, rejects the agreement so that the two kings have to keep fighting in France. Henry now needs the support of the imperial princes, nobles and ministerialis. To gain that, he needs money, glamour and he probably will have to make some major concessions. As for items 1 and 2, his newly acquired kingdom provides plenty. He travels to Germany accompanied by 150 mules carrying selected treasures from the glittering court of Palermo. Amongst them is the coronation mantle of King Roger II. As the name indicates, this mantle was used in the coronation ceremonies of the kings of Sicily and until 1806 in the coronation of the Holy Roman Emperor. It is made of silk and is covered in 100,000 pearls and pieces of enamel. On each side it shows a lion striking a camel and it bears an inscription in Arabic that was only translated in the 18th century. It states that this coronation mantle was made in the royal workshops of Palermo in the year 528 of the Hijar. It is today in Vienna, together with other imperial regalia. On his way home, Henry VI stopped in Folignano, the seat of Conrad, Duke of Spoleto. This is where his son, little Frederick, had been living for the last year. His mother, Constance, had returned to Sicily shortly after giving birth to take over the regency of the kingdom, whilst her husband was travelling back to Germany. It seemed that in the light of the recent conspiracy against the life of Henry, Sicily was still considered too dangerous for the precious heir to the throne. So, little Frederick was left in the care of Duke Conrad and his wife, with German nobles administering the duchy on behalf of the empire. Though Frederick was less than a year old, Henry now puts him at the centre of his political schemes. When he arrives in Germany, to gain the support of the imperial princes, Henry offers a comprehensive package deal. The princes were to receive two important concessions they've been demanding for a while now. Number one, 
was to make fiefs fully inheritable. That means the duke or count gains the right to pass on his fief not only to its eldest son, but to his daughters, nephews and even remote cadet branches. In other words, a fief never returns to the king, but stays within the family, or whoever the family chooses. This is a privilege some princes already enjoy, but others did not. For instance, the Dukes of Austria already enjoyed it under the Privilegium Minus, granted by Barbarossa in 1156, and as we have seen in the aftermath of the fall of Henry the Lion, the Emperor is already struggling to call back fiefs that have become vacant. But it isn't the law of the land yet. Number two was the end of the right of the spolia. The spolia allowed the emperor to confiscate the personal belongings of a bishop or abbot upon their death. And further, it allowed the emperor to draw the income of the bishopric during a period the bishopric was vacant. That had been both a significant source of imperial income and a thorn in the side of the bishoprics. In exchange for these concessions, the princes were to grant the following election of the baby Frederick as King Frederick II of the Romans, participation in the crusade, and, drumroll, making the empire a hereditary monarchy. Yeah, that was his deal. No more elections. In the same way the princes can now pass on their fiefs to essentially whoever they want, the emperor should also be able to pass his crown to whoever he chooses. Fair dues, right? It is just an alignment of the imperial practice to what has been the case in most other European monarchies, in England, in France, in Aragon and in Sicily. Henry pushed his package hard. He first proposed it at a royal assembly in Mainz in early March 1196. As only few princes had shown up for that, a new assembly was set for Würzburg, but still only two weeks later. There, he managed to coerce the princes into accepting the new concept of monarchy. They squirmed and wiggled, they moaned and groaned, but in the end, they took the deal. They cared more about the right to pass on their fiefs as they liked them than the right to elect an emperor. The princes signed a document that set out the new constitution of the empire. They swore an oath to elect the two-year-old Frederick, and many took the cross. It was agreed that the Crusaders should come down to Sicily in the spring of 1197 and should take ship from there to the Holy Land. This again shows how much the control of Sicily changed imperial policy. Previous German crusades had taken the land route via Hungary, the Byzantine Empire and Turkish-controlled Anatolia. And all previous efforts had perished along this route. Sicily, with its splendid navy, finally opened up the sea route for the skinned German knights who could not afford the extortionate fares the Venetians, Pisans and Genoese were charging. So, so far the Wheel of Fortune is still pushing up our Emperor Henry VI. He has his Kingdom of Sicily, he's made the Empire an inherited monarchy, and his crusade is well underway and looks a lot more promising than his father's. But just you wait. When things go well for the Empire, the Popes tend to get very agitated. In fact, Pope Celestine is more than agitated. Foaming at the mouth would be the correct term. Henry VI's last move confirmed his worst suspicions. This emperor is out to get him and the papacy. Not only had he encircled Rome militarily, he also removed one of the papacy's most significant political levers, 
the imperial coronation. As we've seen time and again, the popes had used their right to crown the emperor to extract concessions. They made Lothar III wage war against the Normans, they made Barbarossa arrest Rome from the Senate, and so on and so on. If the empire becomes an inheritable monarchy, the coronation will become nothing but a formality, similar to the coronation of the kings of England or France. The archbishops of Reims and Canterbury could not demand any concessions from their rulers for performing the coronation, and Celestine feared, quite rightly, that this would be the same for the popes once Henry VI got his way. The papacy was facing its worst crisis since Henry III had deposed three popes in one go in 1046. Celestine needs to do something to derail Henry's plans. But what? He did stop the marriage of the only daughter and heir to the King of Aragon to one of Henry's brothers. This would have been an even further expansion of Hohenstaufen power that he could prevent. But it didn't do much to improve the current situation. There was, however, something else. His legates had noticed that many of the princes were uncomfortable with the deal they had just made. They became worried that an inheritable imperial crown could over time challenge their position. They could see how the Capetians across the Rhine were rolling up their once overbearing magnates. So then the Landgraf of Thüringen and some other Saxon nobles publicly refuted the agreement they literally had just signed. They threatened to slow down or even abandon their commitment to go on crusade, thinking that Pope Celestine would release them from their crusader oath when needed. Henry VI was by now down in Italy as part of the preparations for the crusade, and that made it difficult for him to confront the princes directly. He called them to an assembly in Erfurt where his representative pointed to the documents and the letters where they had all committed to the crusade and the recognition of the inherited monarchy and everything, but to no avail. The princes simply said, no, they would not fulfill their obligations, documents or no documents. It's now October 1196, and with all the preparations for the crusade in full swing, ships being prepared, depots set up, mercenaries hired, there is no time left for Henry VI to go back to Germany, sort out the rebels, and still set sail in spring 1197. And a worst-case scenario could materialize. The Pope and the rebels could join forces. He could get excommunicated and deposed, an anti-king could be established, and then you would look at decades of civil war. Essentially, Henry VI's life would turn into the life of Henry IV. The only way to solve that was by going to Rome and bringing this conflict with the papacy to a solution, one way or another. Henry travels south, sends his envoys ahead with the first offer to the Pope. This offer is mainly financial. He offers a settlement over the lands of Matilda. Oh yes, the lands of Matilda, they're still in dispute 85 years after the death of the great countess. Henry offers the Pope some of the most lucrative church benefices in the realm to be paid to him directly in exchange for a formal recognition of the imperial ownership of the lands of Matilda. That is at least financially a great deal, since the lands of Matilda have been under imperial administration for most of the last 50 years and yield close to nothing to the papacy. Money talks and Celestine III agrees to resume the conversation. Henry had already travelled south en route to see his son at Folignano, turns west towards Rome. 
In Montefiascone, roughly 100 kilometers north of Rome, Henry VI received the cardinal Celestine III had sent to negotiate. There he revealed an even larger and more comprehensive proposal, a proposal that would address more of the existing conflicts between the papacy and the empire, not just the lands of Matilda. We do not know what exactly Henry VI proposed at that juncture, but it was likely that on top of the enhanced financial compensation scheme for the lands of Matilda, he would accept the Pope as his liege lord in Sicily, and would let the Pope baptize little Frederick and consecrate him as King of Sicily. That offer was rejected, but not in such a way as to end negotiations. Henry moves now closer to Rome to facilitate. He modified his offer, sacrificing positions that so far no emperor had offered. Again, Celestine III and his cardinals reject the offer. In December, Henry VI makes his last and final offer. We do not know exactly what it was, but Helmut Jericke believes that Henry VI offered to become a papal vassal, not just for Sicily, but for the empire too. That would be the absolute bombshell. The last time a papal envoy suggested the emperor was a papal vassal, he was almost run through with a sword by Otto von Wittelsbach. But here, his son is offering the unimaginable, all that to stabilize his rule in Sicily. Pope Celestine should be ecstatic. Imperial vassalage was the great objective of Gregory VII and Alexander III, but neither of these great popes had achieved it. And now, here it is, offered on a silver platter. But he rejects this last and final offer. He rejected it because Sicily was more important. More important than anything Henry can offer, including himself and his empire. Are they both mad, or is southern Italy really that important? It's hard to believe from today's perspective, but short answer, yes, it was. The whole rise of the papacy from plaything of Roman aristocrats and emperors to its formidable position under Alexander III went hand in hand with the rise of the Normans in Sicily. The Normans were that counterweight the papacy needed to resist the emperor, and they used the emperor as a counterweight against the Normans. Without being able to play these two against each other, the papacy was doomed to fall back into dependency on the emperors. Sicily was rich, rich enough to fund mercenary armies for years, something no emperor had been able to do before. And Sicily had a fleet, again, something no emperor before had commanded. And that is why Hohenstaufen control of the Kingdom of Sicily was unacceptable. There is literally nothing absolutely nothing Henry VI can offer to make them accept it. Not money, not Jerusalem, not vassalage, nothing whatsoever could cut a deal. This is not the end of the Middle Ages, but a key pillar of it is falling in these December days outside Rome. The Pope and the Emperor, the two swords of Christendom, are no longer joined in the pursuit of a common objective. Military and political considerations take precedence over the spread of Christianity. Less than 10 years later, crusaders will plunder Constantinople, the capital of a Christian empire. Others will be chasing heretics in southern France in the service of Philippe Auguste's claim to consolidate royal power in France. And again others will go after Eastern Europe. And then even others will be sent against the emperor in a crusade. The encirclement of Rome and the Patrimonium Petri pits papacy and empire into a fight to the death for the next 60 years, 
at the end of which the Hohenstaufen will be gone and the popes will end up locked in a golden cage that is the Palais des Papes in Avignon, courtesy of the heirs of King Philippe Auguste. This epic struggle will feature two of the greatest popes and emperors in our story, Innocent III and Frederick II. It's going to be great, and I hope you will join us. I should also revert to the normal Thursday morning schedule from next episode, and audio hopefully should also return to normal. Before I go, let me thank you all who are supporting the show. In particular, the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. I must say I'm getting increasingly grateful to you that this show does not have to do advertising. I was absolutely shocked the other day when a host of another show, a show that I admire and that is much more successful than this one, pretended to support some energy supplement. Now, if Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it's much more likely to be seen by others, hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are really the Facebook page History of the Germans podcast and also Twitter at Germans History. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>